Can't believe it. It's the New and Better Podcast, episode 30. Here's the tease. There's something about the world system, the fallen world system, that is knows that fragrance, and that fragrance smells like death to them. And is and it's not that it it's not the person's it's not the fragrant person's death that they're smelling, it's their own. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this delicious digital booyah base. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather, David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant. A better covenant based on better promises. So... Check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the New and Better Podcast. One of the most profound and hard to wrap our brains around mysteries of all, and that is that Christ is in us and we are in Him. Christ in us and we in Him. And it's all through the scriptures, and we looked at all these scriptures that basically reference the fact that we are in Christ when we're born again, we, we are in Him. And then we looked at a whole lot of other scriptures that talk about Him being in us. The aspect that I want us to look at tonight is, are some implications of that, of that mystery, uh, and dive a little bit deeper into it. One of the things I wanted to show you is that in Paul's revelation, and we won't take time to go to all those scriptures, but I'll post these notes to the blog later on when I when I post this recording. But the things that are in the in Paul's revelation that talk about our unity, our connection to Christ when we're born again. Uh, Galatians two twenty says that we've been crucified with Christ, but you can be crucified and not die. Most people got crucified, died, but not everyone, but also not only have we been crucified with Christ, Colossians 2.20 says we've died together with Christ. So we share in his crucifixion, we share in his death. Romans 6.4 that says that we've been buried with Christ. Ephesians 2.5 says that we've been made alive together with Christ. Uh, Colossians 3.1 says that we've been raised together with Christ. Romans 8.17 says that we are sharers in Christ's sufferings. And it also says that we've been glorified with Christ. And we saw last week that the Word says that we've been seated with Christ in, in heavenly places. That's a lot of connection. That's a lot of connection with Jesus. So there's another way to frame the Jesus in us and we in Him mystery, and I want us to take a look at it. You can read on the screen, or if you want to turn in your Bibles to John 17. One of the things we looked at was that this revelation was foretold, that we'd be in Him and He'd be in us, was foretold by Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. You abide in me and I in you. So there was that, that, uh, that was John 15, actually. But... In John 17, we get to his high priestly prayer, which we looked at really briefly last week, but I want us to take a deeper dive because it gives us another way to think about 
this mystery. Here we are in the, what is this? This is the New American Standard translation. Starting in verse 20, Jesus is praying, and at that point he's been praying specifically for his disciples. He's been praying for the 11, really. And to another extent, he's been praying for the, the other people who have been following him around as well, in addition to the 11. Uh, but then, then he expands his prayer, beginning here in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these guys I've been hanging out with, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, please note that phrase, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there's a lot right there. First of all, Jesus is praying for everyone who would ultimately come to believe based purely on the testimony, uh, their belief came on the, on the testimony of the disciples, and that includes all of us. All of us have come to be believers in Jesus because the disciples told someone who believed, and they told someone who believed, and they told someone who believed, century after century, millennia after millennia, and at some point, someone told you and you believed this, this story. So he's praying for us here. And he's praying that we would be one, and we'll talk about that mystery a little bit later on, the mystery of the oneness of the body. And then he says, I in them and you in me. So he's talking about God being in him, Jesus, and Jesus being in us. It's like a, a Russian, Russian nesting dolls. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world." Now, it's easy to read this, for, and Jesus is praying that, 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 okay, these people who are going to believe in me, based on the testimony of the disciples, I pray that they would be with me where I am. Well, where Jesus is going is where? Heaven. Heaven. And so it's easy to just take what he's saying and say that so, the, so that someday when they die, they would come be with me where, where I am in heaven, so that someday they'll be in heaven with me. But I believe that there's much more here than that. That what Jesus is saying prophetically is exactly what Paul would say, is that we would be seated with him in heavenly places. We'd be crucified with him, spiritually, buried with him, raised with him, exalted and glorified with him, and seated with him in heavenly places. It's what he's talking about here. And he, and he mentions glory, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you've loved me for the found, before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So what Jesus is describing here of this, this somehow reality 
that God the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is going to be and is in us. There's no way, there's no way to process that outside of, of thinking in mystical terms. What Jesus is praying for here, and, and, and God, God answered his prayer, by the way, uh, and we see it on the other side of the cross with Paul's revelation, isn't figurative. It isn't symbolic. It isn't purely a, a nice metaphor. It describes something real, and the only way for it to be able to describe something real is to understand that it's absolutely mystical and it's absolutely spiritual. The only way that this can happen is that it is a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit of God. We are in the earth with material bodies, and yet we have a spirit. And because we have a spirit, once that spirit has been made alive by the Holy Spirit, it, it puts us in connection by the Holy Spirit to the realm of the Spirit. I was reading, um, I was reading, there's an old Scottish Baptist preacher named Alexander McLaren, who I love. He got, he got grace at a high level long before a lot of other people did. But McLaren talks about, he, he, his best way to describe it in the, in, the, in the terms of his time is he describes it as a, before there were scuba divers, there were these bell divers. You know, they would put on these suits and these big metal helmets and there would be a, a hose and they could go as deep as the hose would run. And he's, he, he described it in his mind as being like a bell diver who has, who, and when we're, when we're on this earth, we're like the diver who's underwater, yet has a hose that's connecting him to the surface and to the air and to the whole realm of the above water of water world. I think our connection to the Spirit is more than that. It's more than just a hose that brings us life with the Spirit. But it's, it's not a bad place to start as a metaphor. But there, there is a, an aspect of the Holy Spirit's work that links those of us who are in the material world with a born-again spirit to the entire spiritual world, which I think explains how and why it's possible that we can be in Christ and Christ can be, be in us at the same time, and that we can be walking around here on earth in earth suits, in material atomic bodies, and yet be seated in a very real way, be seated with Christ in heavenly places, because it is a work of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's any accident that in that, that passages, those passages in John 14 and John 15, where Jesus describes the fact that we are in him and he's in us, that he's the vine and we're the branches, that we are to abide in him and he in us. Those chapters are the chapters in which he's explaining to them the Holy Spirit. Those, those are the, the, I'm sending you the helper chapters. There, he's, the, the, whole, the whole chapters, the, the whole discourse is about the Holy Spirit, the fact that I'm going to leave you, 
but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to send you another. And it's actually going to be better that that another come uh, because he's not only going to be with you, he's going to be in you. Jesus was with the disciples, but he had never been able to be in them. But this, this another that Jesus was going to send would not only be with them, but in them. There's something about the way the Trinity works. The Trinity is a mystery. God is at once three and one at the same time. That's enough to give you a brain cramp just to, to process that. But there's something about the nature of the, the Trinity. I think that the, the threeness of God is in part a reflection of what plane or dimension God is manifesting himself on. And without taking that too far, I think there's an aspect of the Spirit's work where, especially after Jesus took on human flesh, became one of us. We've talked about how that was a one-way trip. And Jesus got a glorified body uh, that allowed him to be present in the, in the realm of, of the Spirit. But there's something about the nature of the Holy Spirit that has one foot in the Spirit realm and one foot in us who are in the natural realm. It, that. He, that, it, that makes the, the ministry of the Spirit this connecting, this connecting person of the, of the Spirit. Yes, yes. He's, he, he's the conduit and he is the medium. And I'm not using, I'm not using, I'm using medium, medium in the word, in the chemistry sense of the word. In John 15, one, well, but, well but before I go there, um, there's the Holy, the Holy Spirit, if he is the agent of, uh, of the we and him, him and us-ness of our reality, of who we really are, then it, it makes it make sense why his ministry in our life, our awareness of his presence in our life, our openness to his activity in our life is such an integral part of living this life, of walking out this reality of, of Jesus in, in us and we in him. And then there is one additional reality uh, that I want to bring out before we close this this particular mystery. There's so much more for God to show us here, I know. Bill Johnson's going to talk about it a little bit. Not only, not only does the Spirit make us one with, with Jesus and Jesus with us, He makes us one with each other. There's an, there's an I to this mystery, and then there's a we to this mystery. Jesus reference it, references it here. He says in verse 22, The glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, and I in them, and you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that, that you sent me. This is very much uh, in, in line with what he said in, in, in uh, chapter 15. Before we leave this, I do want you to see it in the uh, I do want you to see it in the Passion Translation just for some additional additional light verse 22 
for the very glory you have given me, I have given them so that they will be joined together as one and experience the same unity that we enjoy. You live fully in me and now I live fully in them so that they will experience perfect unity and the world will be convinced that you've sent me for they will see that you love each one of them with the same passionate love that you have for me. We tend to think almost exclusively in terms of our individual relationship with the Lord. And that's a very American Christian sort of thing. We may be, the, the whole West, all of Western civilization is like this, but, but America more than any other place on earth is an individualistic culture. We're an individualistic society. From, from the very time we're born, we eat and breathe and, and soak in this culture of individualism. And it's part of, it's part of our country's strength. But there's a reality for the believer that yes, we are individuals and we have, we absolutely have an individual relationship with God. Jesus is your personal savior. The Holy Spirit is in you personally and as a unique individual has gifted you uniquely. And yet there is another leg of, of the reality of being born again, which causes us to be part of a collective unity. We are a part of a collective thing. We're part of a body. And much of this, much of this miracle, the miracle of us in him and he in us is an individual thing, but it's also a collective thing. It's Jesus in us collectively as a body and us in him collectively as, as a body. And Jesus is praying for this. He's, he's, He's declaring it, he's decreeing it, he's asking for it in prayer. And if you look over here at um, John chapter 15, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. It goes all the way down into verse 10 where he's talking about, he's talking to us as individuals, but he's also talking to us collectively. I think one of the things that set us on the road of thinking only about our individual relationship with God was really one of the greatest blessings and world-changing things that ever happened was we all, we all got a Bible in our hands. Hey, uh, loads of good stuff up ahead and your gateway to that yummy goodness is a just a little sidebar that we call Page two. If we're being real, not religious, real, we can all admit that from time to time we read a verse or a passage in the Bible and say, wait, what? Or what was that? This is even true with the uh, red letters in our Bibles. Yes, even some of the sayings and doings of Jesus are mysterious, and when we read them, they leave us scratching our heads. Those red letters contain a lot of surprises, a few shocks, even some scandals. Well, here's great news. In my new Kindle ebook, Jesus Said What Now? Yours truly, David A. Holland, has chosen 10 of the biggest, 
toughest mysteries and hard sayings of Jesus and solve them for you. As you read this little jewel of a book, you'll discover that often a little historical perspective or a slight shift in theological paradigm can take something that seemed confusing or contradictory or just plain weird and make it make beautiful, encouraging sense. Now, you're just a couple of clicks away from having your grubby mitts on your very own electronic copy of Jesus Said What Now? You'll find a link at the top of my website at davidaholland.com. So run, don't walk your clicky finger over to davidaholland.com and grab it. I suspect it will blow your mind and strengthen your faith at the same time. Okay, now back to the life-transforming content I'm serving up absolutely free of charge today. We all got a Bible in our hands in a language that we understand. Triggered the Reformation, made the Reformation possible, made the whole, the whole evangelical Protestant changing of the world thing possible. But if you put yourself in the position of the first century believer, the first century believer didn't have their own scriptures. The scriptures hadn't even been collected yet and you know, basically assembled yet. So you would come to an assembly and somebody would walk in the door and the pastor would walk in the door and we got, we got a new letter from Paul. We've heard from, we've heard from the apostle. The apostle Paul has written us. And then, so everyone would stand around and then lean forward on their chairs and then the elder would stand up and start reading this letter that I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to you, the beloved in Colossae. Grace and peace to you. When I sit down and open the book of Colossians and Paul's saying to grace and peace to you, I'm the you yeah. that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. But the people who heard Paul's letter wasn't an individual you, it was a we mm -hmm. you. It, it, was a, it was a collective and there's something that we are missing. There are whole cultures on the other side of the world that are in the other, that are in the other ditch. I've, we've talked about this before, but the, 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 the Chinese culture and there are many Asian cultures that have their roots in Confucianism and Taoism and Buddhism are hyper-collective and non-individualistic. As a matter of fact, if you're growing up in Chinese culture uh, and often uh, in, in other East Asian cultures, you're terrified of standing out. The last thing you want to do is stick out. Uh, and and not to to not be conforming to the group the group whole. It's why Chairman Mao was able to get ever you know get a country of at the time 500 600 million people to all wear the same clothes and all read the same book because they they were already culturally hardwired to not be individualistic to be part of a collective. Somewhere in the middle of the America's rogue, I'm, I'm an individual and only an individual, and I am my own thing, and nothing but my own thing. And Chinese collectivist, I'm, I can never ever stand out. God, you know, heaven forbid that I ever stand out. Somewhere in the middle of that is, is a body of Christ truth in which we have an individual relationship with God and yet we understand that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. 
we're part of something that is a body that Paul uses that metaphor on numerous occasions. Uh, Jesus refers to it as a vine with lots of branches grafted in to the, to the vine. Collectively, we are one with Christ, our, we being the big we, the capital W we as, as the, the church, capital C church, but also we as a community. We are one with Christ like branches and a vine are one. Uh, that's a John 1, 15, 1 through 10. We're one like a building and its foundation are one, Ephesians 2, 20 through 22. We are one with Jesus uh, like a husband and wife are one, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. We are one with Jesus like a head and a body are one. It's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. So, we're going, to, we're going to spend some more time because really one of the mysteries of the Pauline Revelation that was revealed was the mystery of the body of Christ. The fact that Jesus is sitting in heaven, reigning, at, at rest, and actively, yet actively reigning on the earth because he has a body on the earth. And we are collectively that body we are not a group of, if there's a, you know, there's about a million, I'm sorry, about a billion Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox on the earth, and then about a billion Protestants on the earth as well. Let's assume every one of the billion Protestants are born again. We are not one billion individuals with one billion individual connections to God only. We are a body in the earth that, that is the, literally the body of Christ in the earth. And his, his enemies are being made a footstool bit by bit, piece by piece, place by place, as, as our feet, his body's feet, take dominion over those, over those enemies. I think it's a huge power key for the Western church, for the American church, is to make that shift. We've just been spoken to is almost exclusively as if our relationship with God is an individual, private relationship to the exclusion of this understanding of our collective mystical connectedness to other believers. Really good. Well, there, there's something there for us to to pray into, not only for you know ourselves as a community. I, I think that understanding, it, part of it is just a paradigm. That a paradigm is that I, I'm I'm a part of something that I, I am not only just I take personal responsibility for my life, and yet I also take personal responsibility for my body, and. Uh, there's this there's this thread that runs through Paul's letters and, and it's reflected in a lot of different ways and part of it is when he says you know as much as it is in your power do good to all men but especially to those of the household of faith there, there's something about 
a sense of responsibility that we start to feel for, for one another if we're of the household of faith, if we're a part of this body. That, you know, if, if, if a part is hurting or lacking or struggling, that has to do with me. Yeah. And whether that's somebody that's part of our community or, or, or a believer that I know in just in my larger sphere of influence, or if believers are being persecuted on the other side of the world, that sense of awareness, that sense of that has to do with me is a, is a paradigm, I think, that we don't, often, we don't often carry. There's one other aspect I just wanted to throw out there. And again, this is just something I'm praying about, I'm, I'm pondering, I'm meditating about, I'm asking for additional light on this mystery. But I wonder if in this, Jesus is in us, yet we are in him, I am in him and we are in him. I know that in this earth, in, in, in the earth realm, in the natural realm, I look like me to the world, even though Jesus is in me, we're, we're one. I, in the natural realm, this Jesus-me combo, this fusion of Jesus and me, looks like David. That Jesus and me combo in the earth looks like Beth. That one looks like Tom. And yet, it's the two, are, the two are become one. I wonder if in on the spiritual side of the equation, the combo doesn't look like Jesus. I just wonder if, if when, I, when I'm approaching, when I'm approaching the throne of grace, it doesn't look like Jesus on that side of the, that side of, of, of the curtain. I'm not being dogmatic about that. I'm just throwing that out there as food for thought. And w with a particular passage of scripture in mind, I know he's seeing his righteousness. Yeah. He's, he's, it's, it says, it says we, are, we are basically have been, you clothe yourself in Christ. Yes. It says uh, in one of the verses we looked at last week, it says we have been enfolded into Christ. All of those in Christ, uh, uh, in Him references in the first chapter of, of Ephesians indicate that basically it's not just, again, I don't, I think it's more than metaphorical. I think it's more than symbolic. I think it's more than typey. I think there's this reality that we haven't grasped that as we're approaching the throne, Jesus is approaching the throne. We've basically, in other words, here on the earth, Jesus is clothed in me. And in the realm of the spirit, I'm, in, I'm clothed in Jesus. But we're really just, we're really one. Guess what Jesus prayed? You know, that basically that, that we would be one with him just as he and the Father are, are one. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter two, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. There's, the, there's another one of those in Christ's, in Jesus's. And manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to another an aroma from life to life. That's that very literal New American Standard 
Greek, word for word Greek there. Let's look at, at it in the uh, Passion Translation and what Paul's saying here will become very clear. God always makes His grace visible in Christ who includes us as partners of His endless triumph. Through our yielded lives, He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere we go. We have become the unmistakable aroma of the victory of the Anointed One to God, a perfume of life to those being saved, and the odor of death to those who are perishing. The unbelievers smell a deadly stench that leads to death, but believers smell the life-giving aroma that leads to abundant life. There's something about the, the presence of Jesus' life in us that gives off a spiritual aroma. God can smell it. It's a sweet-smelling fragrance that goes all the way into the nose of, of God when the Jesus life is inside of us. And that same fragrance is, is detectable to people who are open to God that basically have us, even, even if they're not born again, there's, there are certain people out there that you're walking among day, day in and day out. And the Jesus life in you, that spiritual fragrance that the Jesus life in you is giving off smells sweet to them and it's attractive. And yet there are others and it, it smell, you smell like death. You smell like death to them. And it's the exact same fragrance it's the exact same Jesus life in you, giving off that spiritual cloud that's around you. I don't know if you've ever wondered why the, the moment some high profile person, whether it's a, a politician or a professional athlete or a pop singer or whoever, the moment they sort of become born again and identified with Jesus Christ, they become the object of the most vicious hate you can possibly mm -hmm. uh, uh, imagine. There's something about the world system, the fallen world system, that is, knows that fragrance, and that fragrance smells like death to them. And, is, and it's not that it, it's not the person's, it's not the fragrant person's death that they're smelling, it's their own. Mm. They're, sm they're smelling their own spiritual death in your, in your f fragrance. And I don't know if you've ever met someone who just took an instant dislike to you yeah. for no rational reason. But uh, it's weird when it happens. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's a certain percentage of the population that uh, as, the, as you're giving off that, that scent of the Jesus life in you, you'll smell like, you smell like death and it's terrifying and, re and repulsive to them. And yet, there's, there's a much larger group of people who it, it's attractive. Now, here's what, here, here's what we, our tendency to do is, we want everyone to like us. We want the world. We want the acceptance of the world. We want, we want to be seen cool to the world. Uh, how many efforts have there been to make Christian, Christianity cool for the, so that we can sit as Christians at the cool kids table right. of the world. But the fact of the matter is to do that, you have to mask your scent. Mm. You have to mask that scent that smells like death to the world system. But what have you done? Compromised. The moment you've done that, you've stopped smelling like life to those mm -hmm. 
who need life. The, the only way to stop smelling like death to those who are, who are destined to perish is to smell like life to those that you need to attract. And if you stop the one, you, you stop the other because that fragrance is, is just the essence of Jesus in the Tom suit. Okay, neighbor, before we bring this rodeo to an end today, let's do page three. How about I share a little insight about how you can take a deeper dive into all I have on offer for you. Well, you can sashay on over to davidaholland.com. Now, you got to get that A in the middle there. That At davidaholland.com, you'll find a smorgasbord of stuff that will help you live the sweet life. That's a life of rest and hope and meaning. So until next time, please remember God is better than you think and you're more loved than you know.